You can turn over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We talked a little bit last week about the judgment that is coming, the coming judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. We've been in this for uh, a couple weeks now, and this will be our last week in this section of Scripture. But I just want to uh, read it for you so we can kind of just be familiar with it before we look into uh, our study this morning. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not, do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We made it very clear last week that the Bible speaks of the judgment of God in lots of different places. In the Old Testament, we said that it's spoken of as an earthly judgment, things that happen right away, Sodom, Gomorrah, the flood, all that. In the New Testament, the judgment, when it's talked of the judgment of God, it's usually talked about an impending judgment, a future judgment. But the Bible makes clear that no one will get away with sin. No one will escape the judgment of God. And we looked at that last week. Just a way of review, we looked at basically that the setting of this judgment that's going to take place. First of all, we recognize who the judge was. He's the Son of Man. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given him, delegated to him, all judgment and authority. So he will be the one judging. The time in which this happens, it says in verse 31, he comes in his glory and all his angels with him. The time of the judgment will be Christ's second coming, his, when he returns 
Immediately following, that's when he will set up his throne and he will judge the nations. We don't know the exact time, obviously, because no one knows when Christ will return. But immediately after the tribulation has ceased, sometime it will happen apparently after that. And then we saw the place of this judgment. And we talked a little bit about some of the misunderstanding It says right there in the text, verse 31, it says, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. The place of Christ's judgment will be here on earth. He's coming back to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. And we talked all about the arguments of amillennialism and the arguments of millennialism, which we believe the literal ruling and reigning of Christ here on earth for a thousand years. We went all over that last, uh, last week, so you can get the tape or the notes from last week if you're interested in that. But we believe in a literal ruling and reigning of Christ here with all the saints from glory down here on earth. And by the way, that's not a new... The amillennial say, well, that was created new. That's something new. No, it's not. Even the earliest church fathers believed in a literal millennium. So don't let them use that argument on you. And then last week we looked at the subjects of this judgment. Who are the subjects? It says in verse 32 that all the nations will be gathered before him. Well, it tells us right there the subject of Christ's judgment will be all nations, all peoples. It doesn't have any other meaning than all, all ethnos, all kinds of different people. Where would the place be of this judgment? It will be in Jerusalem. Who are the people who are going to be judged? We talked about this last week. All people will be judged. Some people will be sent into the kingdom, allowed to come into the kingdom because they trusted in Christ as their Savior. Others will be dispatched to hell immediately. And there's only two destinies. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory, as I was taught growing up in a church, where if you're good enough, you end up in purgatory, and somehow, after you die, if somebody gives a lot of money to the church or people pray for you, then somehow you can work your way out of purgatory and end up in heaven. That's a lie. That's not true. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that because they don't teach a true gospel. They teach a gospel according to works. They want you under their, their thumb, so to say. And the only way they can do that is not to have the work of Christ be sufficient for all. They have to keep you endued to the church. So that's what their, their whole goal is. And there's other religions that teach the same thing, a salvation by works. But we know that not to be true. And we looked at last week the idea that these subjects, the process of this judgment, the inheritance of those who are saved, it says there in verse 34 that those who are righteous... The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. And a lot of people get this segment of scripture mixed up in verse 35 because they think, oh, okay, he's telling us that we need to do these good things in order to go to heaven. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying you're going to heaven because of your faith in Christ. And because of your faith in Christ, it's very evident by the things you do that you're a Christian. That your life has been changed. And so when he, you, you see a brother or sister in Christ in need, your love for Christ just passes on to them, and you reach out and you help them, whether they're a stranger or whether they're naked or sick or whatever. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you work your way to heaven by any means. And we know that to be true because in verse 34 he says very clearly that the king says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. He doesn't say you who are doing these good works. Salvation is a blessing from God and God alone. We can't save ourselves. We never could save ourselves. If you're trying to save yourself, just give up and give in and let God save you. It's that simple. It's just frustrating when you talk to people who think somehow by their good works, they're going to earn their way to heaven. The Bible says very clearly that our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. Filthy rags. That that word in the Old Testament actually means a menstrual rag that a woman would use. Something that's unclean. Not looked upon as a good thing. So it says that they were blessed by the Father and they will inherit a kingdom prepared for you. And we talked a little bit about the inheritance and how that works. You don't work for an inheritance. It's given to you because you're part of a family. And that's very clear. And that's what we've kind of gone over so far. Now, it's, it's very important from this point on to understand that we are going to be faced with a time yet coming where this judgment will clearly take place. And when this judgment takes place, people will go to one of two places. Either you will go to heaven or you will go to hell. Be very clear about that. The Bible doesn't talk about any place in between other than that. And last week, we talked about how those people who will go to heaven because of their trust in Christ, evidenced by their good works. But then it says in verse 41, and this brings us to our subject matter for today, the the, the condemnation of the unsaved, those who are not saved, those who have not put their faith or trust in Christ. It says, then he will say to those on his left, I think it's kind of funny that the bad people are on the left and the good people are on the right. Not that that's anything political or anything like that, but it's just kind of interesting if you know what I'm saying. But besides that, it says, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. See, joining the unredeemed devil and his angels in this eternal fire of hell will be those human beings who refuse to believe. Do you understand that hell was never created for human beings? It was never created for human beings. That's not what God's intention was. It said that it was created for the devil and the fallen angels. He's provided a way out of hell for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. It's obvious that Christ does not condemn these people because they failed to serve him. That's not why. He condemns them because they did not put their faith, their trust in him for salvation. See, these are accursed people because they rejected Christ. Christ is the only lifeline you have to eternal life. Just as those who enter the kingdom are righteous because they accepted Christ, they came into a relationship with Christ, thereby having their sins forgiven 
taking the burden of their sin and transferring it to Christ on the cross and saying, I'm going to trust in that and that alone. I'm not going to trust in my own works. I'm not going to try to trust in my own goodness because the Bible says I don't have any. It says all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. I mean, the good news is, you know what? We're all on our way to hell. We're all on our way to a place called hell because of original sin, because sin is just passed down. And if you think that you're a perfect person and you deserve heaven, well, let me just talk to you for a couple minutes, and I can guarantee you you're not. Have you ever told a lie? Well, just a small one doesn't matter. The Bible considers that sin. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value? Well, value, well, maybe when I was small, I, I stole some. It doesn't matter. The Bible says stealing is a sin. It's dishonoring to God. Have you ever thought an evil deed or a lustful thought? Well, yeah, but I didn't act on it. It doesn't matter. Jesus said if you think in your, your heart those things, then you might as well just be an adulterer. So just with three questions out of the Ten Commandments, we realize very quickly that none of us are perfect. None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve a perfect place called heaven. But we deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve eternal separation from his goodness, from his righteousness, from his truth, his joy, his peace, and every other good thing that God offers. We deserve separation from him because he's perfect and we're not. It's very simple. It's, it's not rocket science to understand this. And understand the heart of God. It says here that he prepared this place called hell for the devil and his angels. And this place called hell is a place of eternal isolation. There's not going to be any fellowship in hell. Don't believe the lie that, oh, I'm just going to be bad with my, my, you know, my friends or whatever. And we're all going to go to hell together and party. No, you're not. You're going to be in a place of total isolation. You know, in some of the wars, when they wanted to get people to talk or whatever, what, they, what, what would they do? They would put them in isolation. Even in prison, even to this day, if you're bad and, and you are in prison already and you get worse, what do they do? They put you in isolation. They put you in a little cell, a little tiny cell with a toilet and a sink, and that's it. And after a while, you know what? That wears on you. Not seeing the light of day, not seeing or hearing another human being to talk. I mean, the food is basically thrown through the door at you. That isolation just wears on you. Can you imagine an eternity of isolation? At least in a cell, the lights are on. You can look around at your little toilet and your sink. Maybe you could scribble something on the wall. But in hell, it's going to be completely dark. This place was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's how bad of a place it is. And God, with all of his, he's given everything possible, including his own son, And he desires that none should perish, but that all should come into this relationship with Christ. Will that happen? No, because some will continue to reject. Just like the righteous who are received into the kingdom that we looked at last week. Remember, they were like, wow, when did we feed you, Jesus? We didn't know we did these things. Well, the unrighteous are going to basically bear out the same thing. The accursed who are rejected will be also amazed. Because when they stand before God, these folks 
will probably be looking at some of the good things they've done and patting themselves on the back, saying, yeah, we got this one, no problem, we'll slip in. You know, remember when I fed that homeless person? Remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? Gave a little extra money to the church? Did whatever? Don't ever, don't ever put your faith, your trust in what you do for your salvation. You could be one of the very people that stand before the Lord when he says, you know what? I see everything that you've done, and I don't even know you. But haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we healed people? Haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? They go through the list. Matthew 7, read it. It's amazing. And they're doing it all in his name, which kind of blows my mind as well. But their faith is in the wrong place. And here he will reply to these people in Matthew 25, to the extent that you did not do what I asked you to do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. See, to fail to serve Christ's people is to fail to serve him. I mean, the church really needs to understand this. To fail to serve Christ's people is to fail to serve him. And to fail to serve him is basically proof that you don't belong to him. If you're just coming here warm in a pews, thinking, ah, you know, I'll just come hear the message and then go home and, and then come back the next week. And, you know, and that's all your intention is. That's all you have. You think somehow by com- coming in here and punching a clock with God that somehow that's going to earn you points with God and he's going to give you a hug or something. It's not going to work that way. Are you serving Christ by serving his people? Are you actively involved in a local Bible-believing church? Are you just coming? Because it's kind of on your conscience, and you know that it's the right thing to do, and I know I'm a Christian, and I'm supposed to go hear somebody preach the Word and sing some songs. Are you serving Him? Because that's the real proof of your salvation, beloved. That's the real proof. It's significant that The marks of lostness Jesus mentions here are not some gross sin. He doesn't mention here homosexuality or adultery or other deviant sins, but rather just simple acts of kindness that were never committed. And that's very telling. Think about the five virgins who had no oil for their lamps, and yet they were shut out of the wedding feast. Because they were morally wicked. Excuse me. Because they were not morally wicked, but because they were simply unprepared. They were unprepared to meet the bridegroom. In the same way, the slave with the one talent. Think about that. When we talked about that. He was cast into outer darkness. Why? Not because he embezzled some money. Not because he ripped the the master off. No, because he failed to do something with it. He failed to invest. See, God calls us into Christ and he calls us to a life of action. There's no room for spectators in Christianity. There's just not. I mean, everyone Jesus called, pretty much they went to work for him somewhere along the line. They were plugged in. That's why God has, through his spirit, given us gifts and talents to be used for his glory. And I want to ask you this morning, are you using them? Or are you just floating through life on the armchairs of grace? Because you may be deceived if that's the case. Jesus uses this same word, this eternal, 
to describe salvation and condemnation there in verse 46. If believers will be in heaven with God forever, then I want you to understand this morning the lost will be in hell with the devil and the demons forever. It's a, it's a final judgment as we've spoken of before. And since this millennium kingdom that we're talking about here will be worldwide, there's going to, no, you're not going to be able to hide. There's no place for the accursed to go. Everyone will face this judgment. And basically, if they're found wanting, if they're found without Christ, they will be slain on the spot immediately and go into the eternal punishment of hell. That's how it will take place. There'll be no room for grace. There'll be no room for remorse. At that point in time, it's over. At the end of the thousand years, their bodies will be raised, John 5 tells us, and they will again stand before God for the final sentencing, the final condemnation of their, their bodies. But their spirits will immediately go to hell. But it says the righteous will go into eternal life. See, to spend all eternity glorified with the Lord and Savior that you now serve, what an amazing thing. I mean, sometimes I wonder, you know, when we're at funerals of believers and, and people, you know, are, are sad and they're, I understand, you know, you're going to miss people. I, I get that. But why would, you, why would you want that person back here on earth if you know they're in glory with their Savior? That just I, doesn't compute to me. I mean, we should be looking forward to the glories of heaven as the righteous of, of God. Those who are saved by his grace. And yet, we should be fearful of the perils of hell if we are not saved by his grace, if we haven't trusted in the Lord for our salvation. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about the perils of hell. This is a subject that people don't talk on, it's not a popular subject. There's, there's verse after verse in the Bible. It continually says, And they shall be cast into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I mean, a horrifying picture. I mean, if there's any doctrine in the Bible that somehow <clears throat> I could wish wasn't there, it would be the doctrine of hell. <laughs> but you know what? We can't do that. We can't just take hell and eliminate it. from the Bible. Just can't do it. Nor can we eliminate anything else. Do you know that from the mouth of our Lord, He spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And He did so for good reason. He wasn't trying just to scare people. That's not the purpose of our time here this morning. I mean, people probably wouldn't listen if anybody else tried to teach about hell, to be honest with you. Christ had to be the one who taught about hell. I mean, we cannot even conceive what it's going to be like. The Bible gives us some description. But we can't conceive of eternal damnation. I mean, Christ emphasized hell in his preaching. 
You know, you hear of these people who are hellfire brimstone preachers, right? They scream and yell and fire comes out of their, smoke comes out of their ears and all sorts of weird stuff. All right? Jesus was one of those kind of guys. He was a hellfire brimstone preacher. I mean, what are we talking about when we talk about hell? Well, it's something, hopefully, that people want to be saved from, right? I mean, hopefully, you don't want to go to hell. Hopefully, it's not your intention to go to hell. If it is, maybe after this morning, you'll change your mind a little bit. But the reason that we should know and understand about hell and preach about hell is, is very simple. We want people to be saved from hell. We want people to be saved from eternal punishment, a punishment that never ends. Conscious existence, conscious life in a body that's resurrected and suited for everlasting punishment. See, that's why it has to have a special body in hell, just like we have a special body in heaven. They have a special body in hell because the body will never burn up. The Bible speaks of this place that we know as hell. In the Old Testament, the word Sheol makes reference to that in a general way. In the New Testament, the word Hades is sometimes used to reference it. But always, mark my words, always the word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which is spoken of in the book of Revelation, which is called the lake of fire. And it's where people will be punished and tormented forever. I mean, I think that we sort of comfortably maybe distance ourselves from the thought of the reality of hell. Um, In any church, it's pretty much overlooked. I mean, maybe you hear a message on hell once a year, maybe every couple years. I mean, there are those preachers who even claim to be Bible teaching. They never talk about hell. They never talk about hell. And yet, I think it's the first thing we need to talk about when we're sharing the gospel with someone. See, we're so quick to go to somebody who's not saved and say, oh, don't you want eternal bliss in heaven with God? Don't you want this? And we start offering them all this candy, Christian candy. And they look at it and they go, well, yeah, that looks like a pretty good deal. Who would turn that down? So then we have them pray some little prayer and, and, and tell them, oh, now you're a Christian, go your way. That's not the gospel, beloved. The gospel has to include the horrors of hell. If it doesn't include the horrors of hell, then what are we saved from? See, this is about salvation from something, something bad, something horrible, something eternally evil, and that is hell. The reality of hell has found its way even into our modern culture, you might say. There's a survey online that says 75% of people living in America believe in hell. (laughs) Do you know that? 75% of people living in America believe in hell. I mean, that's the influence of Christianity. Because a lot of other religions, they don't want to talk about hell. Of those 75%, 4% believe there is any chance that they will ever go there. (laughs) Only 4%. Out of the 75% of people in America that believe in hell, when asked, do you think you'll go there? Only 4% respond, yes. That's rather telling. We've gotten our point across as far as hell being a literal place, but somehow we haven't gotten the point across that they're not ready to die yet. 
somehow they've missed the point when it comes to the sinfulness of their sin. And it's the society we live in, to be honest with you. We live in a world where sin is freely exploited all over the place. I mean, you can't even take little children through a grocery store without, you know, you look at the magazines and it's like, wow. (coughs) What is this? What do they start asking you questions about the words they see on the cover? Sin is so much a part of our culture that it's every imaginable sin, for the most part, is acceptable in the, in the day in which we live. I think maybe with the exception of pedophilia, molesting little children. That's still shunned upon, for the most part. However, there are groups of people, of adults, who do that, and they have little clubs, and within that club, it's freely accepted. Boy love association, this kind of sick stuff. But for the most part, every other sin is culturally acceptable. <clears throat> I mean, if you stop and think about it, that's true. You don't find outrage over adultery anymore. When people sleep with their neighbor, they sleep with whoever outside of marriage, it's kind of like, well, you know, I guess you're going to get a divorce and move on. You don't find outrage over homosexuality. As a matter of fact, I was reading, I think it was Thursday or Friday, in the paper, okay, that that just recently the Pentagon has decided that it's not good enough to allow homosexuals to serve openly in our military. But now Mr. Panetta is going to lead the charge in honoring them as they serve. So we're going to have, you know, like they have Black Culture Month. In the military? Well, now they're going to have homosexual month in the military. I mean, show me where they have straight month. Show me where they have married to one woman month. They don't. Why? Because that's not sinful. See, our world is in the process of glorifying sin to the, to the wildest imagination. And that's exactly what the Bible says will happen. The hearts will grow cold. You know, the radical homosexual agenda in this, in this community, even in which we live, is just gone rampant. I mean, if you even speak out about it, you're threatened in some way. You know, let me be clear. Does, homos, does, is, does God love a homosexual? Yes. Christ died for the homosexual just like he died for the adulterer, just like he died for the the, the guy who's involved in porn. All that sin is the same before God. It's all sin. But let me tell you very clearly, God hates homosexuality. That's not even an option. That's not something even to be wavered upon. Does he extend his arms to a homosexual and say, hey, repent of your sin and turn to Christ? Yes, he does. And so should we. Who are we to look down our noses at somebody involved in that lifestyle and judge them when we've done probably things just as bad? And before God, they're definitely bad because all sin is grievous before a holy God. But I'll tell you one thing. If, you, if you're so inclined not to get yourself involved 
and begin to realize that the world in which we live in is on a fast track to hell itself. We need to step up to the plate and be a little more vocal about what Christ says about these things in a loving way, in a respectful way. And then maybe God will begin to work. But you don't find outrage over homosexuality. You don't find outrage over lying or cheating or stealing. I mean, it's almost a, a commonplace thing. I mean, even statistics show that, that big corporations have to spend tons and tons and millions and billions of dollars to prevent theft from their own employees. That's just the way our society is. I mean, murder is still unacceptable to some point unless the person who kills them doesn't think they should deserve to, to live. But then again, when we stop and we talk about the murder of the unborn... Widely accepted. I mean, your thought is some crazy guy if you wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade. See, we're very used to sinning is what I'm trying to say. We've grown very comfortable, even as a church. We can go to a movie theater and sit through a movie and there's F-bombs all over the place. And Well, it's just a movie, it's just entertainment, it's okay. Or sex scenes here and there, you know, well, they didn't show everything. Do you think that's honoring to Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so. We have to kind of rein it in a little bit. We need to grow a little more uncomfortable, and I'm preaching to myself as well as everybody else. Because our society has very few consequences in it for people who sin. So the world in which we grow up in, at one point in time, certain things were defined as sinful. Well, it was wrong to sleep with your neighbor's wife. It was wrong to do this. It was wrong to do that. Well, now it's just acceptable behavior. There's no consequences. I mean, when, when a young child comes home at the age of 12 and announces to his mother that he's homosexual, well, then she becomes a homosexual advocate. <laughs> I mean, that's how it's dealt with. I mean, there's no absolutes anymore. There's no consequences for any kind of immoral behavior. And it's this warped sense of good and evil and distortion and misunderstanding of justice that has gotten us to the point in which we're in. I mean, we don't know what sin is except a sin can never be what I do. If what I do harms someone else, well, then we would consider that sin. That's not what the Bible says. And the truth of the matter is that if the culture imposes no consequences and the family imposes no consequences and society places no stigma on people for the kind of behaviors that are sinful behaviors, what happens? People get used to sinning without consequences. I mean, think of your own kids. If you let your kids do whatever you want, you never have consequences. They never get a smack on the butt or, you know, sit in the corner or whatever it is. Well, then your words aren't going to mean anything to them. People sin without immediate consequences, and then they try to convince themselves that somehow, you know, down the road that it's, it's going to be okay. No, it's not. Your sins will find you out. I mean, look at Romans 2. It says that you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
eventually God will carry out his justice and his judgment. And he will do it in a way that is very just, because he is a just God. Now, I want to give you just a little discussion here on the subject of hell. And you can follow along in your Bibles. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 22, Jesus said this about hell. Whatsoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire, he said. And then in verse 29 and 30 of Matthew 5, he said, if your right hand offends thee, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's profitable for you to have uh, one of your members perish and not that your whole body should be cast into where? Hell. If your right hand offends thee, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's profitable that you lose one of your members. Then your whole body should be cast into hell. This is Jesus Christ speaking about hell. Matthew 8, verse 12. He says, The sons of the kingdom shall be cast into, cast out into utter darkness. And there shall be na- weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 24. He says, Then began he, Jesus, to unbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Jesus condemned people who did not repent of their sin. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind. It means rather than look at your sin and say, hey, this is fun. You look at your sin and you go, whoa, this is dishonoring to God and I need to do something about it. That's what repenting is. It's changing your mind about the things you do. Jesus condemned people who did not repent of their sin and said that they would go to hell, verses 21 and 24. I mean, those are serious words. Even in Matthew chapter 12, he said, but I say to you that every idle word, listen to this. This this just cuts right to my heart because sometimes I say crazy things. You know what I mean? You ever do that? You just start talking. It's like, whoa, what am I even saying this? You know, you're driving in the, 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 the car and somebody pulls out in front of you. You idiot. What are you, you know, Sometimes I forget my grandkids are around, and they're always, you know, Grandpa, keep me in check. But it says here, I say unto you every idle word that a man shall speak, that shall give account on the day of judgment. Wow. For by thy words you shall be justified, or by your words you shall be condemned. Jesus constantly taught about hell. There's other references there. In Luke chapter 16, he told a story about a rich man that died, and he went to hell. The man was in such torment that he screamed for Abraham to send Lazarus with water just to cool his tongue. I mean, I think that the emphasis of preaching should be on hell, but we don't do that. I mean, it's, it's convicting to say that we say little about hell, even in our church. I mean, the truth of hell, I think, is so terrifying and so incredibly awesome that if our Lord had not taught about hell, I don't think anybody would believe in it. Because who would, who would think of such a place? But it's a real place. Well, what is hell? Let me give you a description. Four quick things here. First of all, it's a place of punishment. It's a place of unrelieved torment and horrible misery. The Bible defines it as outer darkness. It's a place of impenetrable darkness without light. If you've ever been in a dark place, I remember we went to, I think it was Calaveras Canyons or one of those places, caves, and you go down and the guy, you get down there and they turn the, the little flashlight off and it's pitch, I mean, people are standing right next to you, you can't even see the hand in front of your face. 
And after a little while, it begins to get creepy. I mean, just last night, we were laying in bed, and, and my granddaughter's going, oh, it's really dark in here. Well, yeah, we're going to bed. Like, Can you turn the light on? You know, it's too dark. Just open the door. Hell is a place of utter darkness. I mean, if you've ever been in a place of darkness for very long, basically you'll go crazy. Your body can't, your mind can't even deal with it. And that's what hell is going to be like. See, the, the hell, the fire in hell also isn't the fire that we use to burn something. So you're not going to get light from the fire. I don't know what kind of fire it is, but it's some kind of fire. God uses the word fire to describe hell as a place of torment, a place where there'll be no relief from suffering. God uses both darkness and fire to describe the torment of those who have refused to put their faith and trust in Christ. And the Bible tells us a couple other things. It tells us two, two ways people will respond in hell. When you're in hell, here's how you respond. One is the parable that the Lord tells in Luke 16, which I spoke about, where the, the man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on us and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his water in finger and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And this isn't just for a couple minutes until you pass out and burn up, because your body's never going to burn up in hell. The other statement that Jesus frequently made when talking about hell, and he uses it all over the place, he said there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, just the idea of gnashing your teeth. You know, I don't even know what that word means, but it doesn't sound pleasant. You know, you think of grinding your teeth. You ever grind your teeth? It's just kind of, ugh, it sends chills up your spine. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is not going to be a place of fun, beloved. It's not. It's not going to be a place of partying. It's going to be a place of weeping, screaming, grinding of teeth, unrelieved torment. Not just for a year, not just for two years or five, for all eternity. I mean, wrap your mind about that. We're talking about all eternity here. I was reading a book, and they were talking about this soldier who was being punished, and he said the only good thing was when they started to punish me more and more and more, my body just couldn't take it, and I'd pass out, and I wouldn't have to deal with the pain anymore. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine that? You're not going to be able to pass out in hell. It's not going to happen. Well, look at the details of this punishment. Hell is a place of unrelieved torment for both, listen to this, body and soul. When a a non-believer dies, his soul leaves the presence of God and goes into hell. At the judgment. His soul probably doesn't go into the lake of fire that all the unbelievers will be thrown into after the great white throne judgment. Because you have to have a body to be thrown somewhere. But it still goes to a place of torment. When an unsaved person dies, his soul transcends or descends to, into hell. In the future, the Bible says there will be a resurrection of those bodies, those who are damned to hell. And at that time, they will be given a, a, a body, kind of like the opposite of our glorified body, you might say, that can be literally thrown into the lake of fire. That's when Christians will also be resurrected and given a glorified body. which will enable them to enter into the kingdom and into heaven. 
I mean, think about this. Those who are condemned to hell will be raised just like we are raised. And they will even be given new bodies just like we'll receive good new bodies. But their bodies will be given to them for the sole purpose of being punished forever. That's what Jesus said. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 8, 28, when we went through that? He said, fear not them who kill the body, he said. Don't worry about that. You better fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that word destroy doesn't mean to annihilate. It's not like you're going to go to hell and just burn up and it's all going to be over real quick. No, it doesn't work that way. Some people think that hell will only be experienced by the inner conscience somehow. But hell is going to be experienced by the body too. That's why they will receive a body. And the reason they have to receive a new body is because our bodies couldn't endure the the torment of hell. It just couldn't deal with it. So God has a whole new body prepared for those who will be damned. Well, how do we know that the damned will have eternal bodies? First of all, the Lord says that hell is a place. And he says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 44 to 48. He says, where the worm dies not. You know, when you die here on earth, what happens? Your body is embalmed, it's placed in a tomb, it's placed in the ground, and like it or not, little critters start, you know, digesting your flesh. Well, when there's nothing left to eat on your body, those little critters die. That's what he's saying. He's saying here, he's using that illustration, he says, you know what, in hell, the worm's never going to die because your body's never going to be totally gone. When a body is put in a grave, it's consumed by those worms. But in hell, the worms of, that are there will never die because the body will never be totally consumed. In other words, it's going to go on and on and on and on. Second, the Lord described hell as a place where the fire is not quenched. Think about it. Even in a house fire, after the house burns up, what happens? The fire goes out, Right? I mean, you could, you, could, you could set your fireplace on fire and you have logs in there and it's burning. And if you just step away and you do nothing for the next several hours, what's going to happen? You're going to have a fire, but it's going to continually die down, die down. Why? Because it's lacking fuel. Eventually, the fuel is going to run out. Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, hell is a place where the fire is not quenched. The fire in hell will never run out of fuel. It will never die out. Hell is a place of unrelieved torment for both the body and soul. Thirdly, I want you to understand there's degrees of punishment in hell. This torment that we're talking about will be experienced by different people in different degrees. I mean, obviously hell will be a horrible place for everyone there, but some people are going to suffer more than others. I know that because in Matthew 10, or Hebrews 10, verse 29, it says, of how much sorer punishment shall be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. In other words, let me be clear, those who receive full knowledge of what Christ did for them, but they still reject it, you better watch out. They're going to receive a more severe punishment in hell. Why? Because they've been exposed to the truth. 
You know, don't think it's a joke. You come here every week and you hear a message of the gospel. You hear that, you know what, you're a sinner. You're not perfect, that you need a Savior. Christ is the Savior. He died on the cross for you. You need to come and you need to trust. You need to put your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you. And you walk out those doors at the end of the hour and you go, eh, whatever, it's not for me. No big deal. Don't believe that lie, beloved. Because judgment is coming. And sooner or later, you're going to die. And when you die, you're going to go one of two places based on what you do with Christ. Hell won't be tolerable for anyone. But Jesus was saying that it will appear to be more tolerable. He says in Matthew 11, it will will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Because The people in Jesus' day saw him personally do all these miracles. They heard the gospel from his very lips. And yet they still rejected the Savior who was right there with them. Hell is a place of unrelieved torment of the body and soul in various degrees. John Gerstner says this, Hell will have such severe degrees that a sinner will be able, were he able, would give the whole world if his sins could be just one less. Talking about a real place here. Lastly, the duration of this punishment. Hell is a place of unrelieved torment of body and soul in various degrees, and it's going to be endless. I already said the worm will never die, the fire will never die out, light will never shine there, the sweet relief of death will never come. The only reason some people are able to endure life, to be honest with you, with all its sufferings and and everything that goes on is is because they know that, you know what, eventually they're going to (laughs) die. And they think when they die, they'll just be relieved of that. But when you die, you go one of two places. And if your place is hell, it's an eternal place. I think the people there will go literally insane How do you know hell is everlasting? Matthew 25, verse 46. He didn't stutter. Jesus said that the wicked will what? Go away into, what's it say? Everlasting punishment. And the righteous into everlasting life. Okay, let's see. On this side, we have everlasting punishment. You're going to be punished forever for your sin. On this side, you have eternal heaven with God, sins forgiven, totally righteous, joy, peace, happiness, go on and on and on. I mean, you, you make the choice. Like I said, it, it's, it, it doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to figure this thing out. Jesus was very clear when he was here. He said, you have to make a choice. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. If you want to trust in your own good works and in your own religions and all that other stuff, go ahead. You'll be with all the rest of them. But it says narrow is the way that leads to life. In other words, you know what? Sometimes it takes a little bit of struggle to get into heaven. You got to wrap your mind around it. As men, sometimes we don't want anything for free. You know, we don't want, you know, we don't need that crutch of religion, whatever it is. Well, trust me. There's going to come a time and day when you're going to say, man, I wish I had that uh, that crutch of Christ. 
I wish that my sins were forgiven. Hear me this morning. God never meant for hell to be for people. He made it for the devil and his angels. But people choose to go to hell by rejecting Christ. Some souls are suffering right now. They're waiting for their resurrected body. But even after they receive their their new bodies, they will be no closer to the end of eternal punishment than when they first entered hell. I mean, no wonder Jesus had to teach about hell. I wouldn't want to teach about this. I'll leave you with a quote by John Bunyan. He said this, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thine hair ready to stand upright on, their, on your head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of the devils appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with thee, howling and roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt be even at wit's end and be ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torments. If after 10,000 years the end should come, there, should be comfort, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell for many thousands of years, as there are stars in the firmament, or drops in the sea, or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word Ever, how will it torment your soul? Father, we pray this morning that as we looked at this subject matter of hell, Lord, understanding that one day the judgment is coming. And Jesus was very clear. Those who know Him, those who put their faith and trust in Him, those who have trusted in the crucified Savior, the risen Savior, for the forgiveness of their sins will have just that forgiveness. They'll be blessed with the righteousness of Christ. You can't buy your way to Christ. You can't earn your way to Christ. It's a gift. The Bible says very clearly, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I ask you this morning, don't leave this place without putting your faith, your trust in Christ. In the work that he did for you because he loved you. Because he cares for you. The Bible says that God doesn't desire that any should perish in a place called hell, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to Christ. It's not about this church. It's not about church membership. It's not about being baptized. It's not about reading your Bible. It's about what are you going to do with Christ? Are you going to trust Him? Are you going to put your faith and trust in Him today? Cry out to Him. 
If you cry out to him from a sincere heart, just in the quietness of this moment, he'll hear that prayer. He'll save you. He's not going to make you into some religious freak. He's going to turn you into the kind of person that he desires you to be. He created you. He knows you best. He knows exactly what you need. He knows and understands the burden you're carrying. He wants you to cry out to him, Father, be merciful to me. Help me to put my faith, my trust in Christ this morning for my salvation. Help me to stop trusting in myself, in religion, in the works of man. Help me to put my faith and trust in the works of God. And for us believers, I pray that this morning would be a picture of what awaits those who have come yet to come to Christ. And Lord, that should motivate us to go out of these four walls and to share the gospel with those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle they live. It doesn't matter what kind of church they go to. Father, we, we want to take the truth of the gospel, the gracious, life-giving message that Christ died for us. He rose on the third day. And if we put our faith and trust in that work, that he will save us. I pray that we would take that message to those who are around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family members who have yet to put their faith and trust. And when they reject it, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting you. Give us the courage to do so. Pray that all of us would have a good Father's Day today. And I know that it's a tough message to preach on Father's Day, but Lord, somehow... This is where we're at in this portion of Matthew, and I pray that you would just bless this message to the hearts of those who hear it. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.